Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Hollywood Sources. I'm Kyle McDonald. We're recording on Wednesday the 29th of November. Thanks very much for finding us. Please follow, please subscribe, and please tell your friends as well. Speaking of friends, Jeff Aberdeen's here, who was Chief of Staff to Alex Salmond. Hello, Jeff. Good morning from a snow-covered Aberdeen. Oh, wowzer. Uh, and good morning, Andy McKeever, who was Director of Communications for the Scottish Conservatives. Hello, Andy. Good morning. Early this morning. The listeners will be lucky if they don't hear... My children's friends coming to get them, them slamming the door, leaving the house, coming back because they've forgotten their lunch, and so on and so on. You'll be greeted by lots of noise this morning if we're not lucky. Good. Well, I very much have morning voice on. I was in I was in Aberdeen yesterday, Jeff. I didn't see you, sadly, um, but that's fine. You, know. you didn't. But one of my colleagues went along to see you, and you uh, with a, an autograph book, and you didn't sign it. You big <laughs> diva. You. I was offering selfies for a price. I was saying Aberdeen wants paid, so it's a five or a shot, and I'll donate all, pro, all, pro, all proceeds go to Jeff Aberdeen. Nobody, nobody went for it. S- serious point, though. You were up there for a food and drink summit, and I think people probably, um, uh, uh, no thanks to me, but think it's all about energy and oil and gas and <laughs> offshore wind up here. But what a thriving food and drink sector we have as well. I think it's worth two billion to the Scottish economy annually. It's uh, yeah. something else. It is absolutely and not amazing. to not to. It is amazing, and not to uh, divert too far from any topics that we're covering on this podcast today, but it's another really good example of how sometimes in the central belt we do tend to forget what's going on elsewhere. I mean, whiskey's not happening in the central belt. Uh, Salmon, the UK's biggest food export, smoked Scottish salmon, is not happening in the central belt. It's happening in all these other communities around the coast. Uh, It's very easy to forget when we're here. Fun stat for you, by the way, on, on Scottish salmon. I, it was the case um, some years ago, I think it still is, but Scottish salmon, owing by the fact that it's a, um, it's precious, you need to get it out to its customers globally quickly, is the biggest export by volume that leaves Heathrow every week. That now, is a good Somebody stat. can fact check that, because it certainly was the case some time ago, but I'm, I'm, I'm assuming it still must be. Yeah. Oh, it's absolutely yeah. massive. France, the US, both massive, massive markets for Scottish salmon. One of the biggest producers in the world of um, of farm salmon. Do you know the other thing as well? Yesterday, so this was the Times and the Sunday Times Food and Drink Summit, and future, specifically the future of food and drink summit in Aberdeen. And the other thing as well is the number of people that have started up in the northeast of Scotland that are now huge or becoming huge. And, you know, that's everything from, like, Mexican food. Uh, there was a guy there who's started sort of Mexican, like, sachets of flavouring. A couple of restaurants, one in Aberdeen, one in Edinburgh. They're huge on Deliveroo. I think they're, like, the most popular burrito in the country on Deliveroo. And that all started in Aberdeen as well. So it's the kind of launch pad for so many places, as well as lots of things being based there too. 
but the, but there's a lesson from our pol- for our policymakers in that, and 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 it is a lot to do with oil and gas because innovation and entrepreneurialism was at the heart of that finding solutions through R and D to uh, major offshore problems, and a lot of what um, uh, the companies that you're referring to there, a lot of them have a hinterland in oil and gas. They're you know they're transferring their skills to new sectors um, and it's really quite amazing and I think we've got a really high set of startups and scale up businesses here and it's it's something that we need to engender elsewhere in the country um, uh, because that is how you really improve your economy uh, with uh, increasing your startup scale ups innovative businesses doing new things finding solutions to different problems particularly in a low carbon pressure era so yeah it's, it's it's a fascinating kind of place actually it's a, you can also lose it quickly though jeff right yeah, you I can know. lose it really quickly if you don't if you don't i mean i was thinking when you were talking there about entrepreneurialism i was thinking um there's doing some work with uh, a client of message matters plus zero which we've talked about a bit before a hydrogen client we did some some stuff in the media last week um that sort of innovation is not directly related to oil and gas, obviously, because it's green hydrogen, but it is an energy innovation which comes about because we have this foundation of knowledge and skills in the energy industry. You can lose these things very quickly if you fail to cultivate them or if you reject them outright. They go away. They go somewhere else. Uh, It's dangerous. Yeah, well, I mean, and I don't want to go back to this because people accuse me of being my hobby horse, but it was really interesting. Um, <laughs> at the Keir Starmer visit a um, couple of weeks back, uh, one company, I won't name it because um, it was a Chatham House rule discussion, but was saying, look, we are diversifying into to offshore wind and we're really excited about it. But right now, my business is losing almost £2 million a month on offshore wind because there isn't the commercial scale for them to capitalise on at this stage because we still don't have the projects um, established and he said the only way I'm funding that is through my oil and gas business and it's like you are you know a crystallisation of the need for a managed transition you know it was really really interesting anyway I, I don't want to go back to my hobby horse people will be criticising no. me <laughs> have we actually started the podcast Sorry, Callum yeah. I can't go yeah, no, this is good <laughs> <laughs> this is good chat because that you know I in, in anticipation of hosting the event yesterday I was I was looking into how important food and drink is specifically for that for the northeast of Scotland but you know for the, to the economy as a whole I should say by the way the Mexican brand I mentioned is called Fresh Mex and I'm, I'm obsessed with Mexican food so you know look it up and order a burrito on Deliveroo if you can um, but it was just it was just real enthusiasm so the, the, the sort of the other thing about it was um, the the opening in 12 months of this one seed pod uh, this yeah. sort of big communal hub for businesses to join together, to collaborate, to work together, to have access to space and expertise and all of that. And um, well, it just struck me that that's a really good idea to, to have that. And I'm not just saying that because they were putting on the bleeding event, but because actually it brings people together in order to turn it into a kind of powerhouse effort for a region to really work together and punch through and exactly that, make themselves heard where they may otherwise be kind of not listened to. They are a client of mine, so um, I'm just saying that for <laughs> conflict of interest in um, things, you know, and that we're a political podcast, I just need to say that. But no, it is a fantastic, fantastic no. project, and when it's up and running, it really should act as a, a catalyzing hub for other businesses. But yeah. yeah, long way to go. It was good. It was good. We were all, The event was also hosted at P&J Live, Jeff. It was indeed. Uh, which is the largest arena in Scotland. So this is a pro-Aberdeen yeah, podcast today. I was about to say. I was about to say. Yeah. Do you know, I made I made the, the comment that the last time I was there was about a month ago for the SNP conference. The atmosphere was remarkably different. <laughs> Yesterday yeah. felt a lot less like a funeral, uh, frankly. Yeah. So there we are. Right, today on the podcast, we are going to dive into some of your questions. Now, some of these have been lingering in the inbox for a little while, for which I apologise, but, you know, there's something charming about being bad at admin isn't there we all love that uh, but also we've been kind of waiting to sort of build an episode around your questions which you can send in any time and if we've sort of space week to week we can drop them in here and there or otherwise we will build into a, a sort of focus episode like this one so uh, there's lots of ground to cover in here from the lib dems to where the snp are at to sort of more profound and um, <laughs> and also less profound things as well. Alex Ferguson will make an appearance a little bit later on. Uh, right, let's start with this one from Nick, uh, who emails from a train outside Slough. 
um, which is even less glamorous than, you know, than our lives. Anyway, he says, as an expat down here, I keep an eye on... I tell you, there's a lot of problems in Scotland, Callum, but one of those problems is that we don't... I mean, at least we don't have slough. You know? <laughs> we can be forever thankful to not have slough. But slough, slough was the home of Wernham Hogg, the, uh, the great um, satirical The Office show. From the yes, that was The Office, yeah. was in slough. I wonder how they're doing. Thriving, I'm sure. That's true. Sorry, uh, Callum. Interruption. No, no, it's fine. It's one of those days. Uh, Nick, Nick is very nice about the podcast, which is good. Uh, one way I like to keep tabs is to lurk on the respective Glasgow and Edinburgh subreddit groups. It's always eye-opening to see what people in the cities are talking about. And key point, what is so different from the Hollywood agenda? Now, this is genuine. This is really fascinating. So he says, I wonder if your panellists, as in you guys, might be willing to reflect on the gap between the sort of main agenda and the reality of life in the cities. He says, I'm sure there's an Aberdeen one somewhere as well for Jeff. But in short, he says, Glasgow, the bins, the waste, the wide, the wide old behaviours of their fellow citizens is how Nick describes it. As it has ever been, but with extra venom on the bins. And Edinburgh, some of the above, but with some more policy-centric rabbit holes. The whole lettings and Airbnb policy and sector got a good discussion. And this is an interesting thought, isn't it? Is whether the kind of Hollywood agenda matches what people are actually talking about. And Nick gives some very helpful examples. Jeff, what would you say to that in terms of kind of when you're in government and when you're trying to sculpt a message and and meet the meet the issues of the people, as it were, without wishing to sound too pompous about it? Is that actually, is it really quite difficult? Yeah, it's a really, really good question. And to answer it, I'm going to just offer my own observations from my time in the SNP. So going back um, in the run-up to 2007, the SNP stronghold was largely in the northeast of Scotland, in and around Perthshire and some areas in the Highlands. And um, all politics is very local. So you need to be able to speak to your constituents on the ground and give them confidence that you're going to represent their needs. Now, what happened in 2011 was, you know, the, the landslide election, the majority election in Holyrood, you know, the SNP broke the system. And the SNP kind of became a party where it didn't matter if you were rural or you were urban. It didn't matter if you were from Glasgow or if you were from uh, uh, rural highlands. Uh, you could find a reason to align with what the SNP were offering. And as Bernard Ponsonby put it on election night, um, I always remember this to the he said, the SNP become a true national party of Scotland. And um, I think what's happened since, uh, with that stature, it's very difficult to maintain that. And what's happened since is you've got a situation where the SNP have tried to continue that National Party for Scotland, but have actually pursued quite specific policies that uh, in recent times perhaps haven't represented uh, all of those constituents. And it goes back to the point that I made to Hamza Youssef. I said he was in danger of potentially trying to be all things to all people. And I don't necessarily think that's what voters want. They want conviction. They don't necessarily expect to agree with you in every particular issue, but they want to know that you get it. You understand my, that an individual's local concerns, and hopefully that's represented on the national uh, parliament level. And I think that kind of connection has been lost somewhat in recent times. And I think any political party and any politician, whatever party you represent, um, has to look at that really, really closely. Because fundamentally, we can talk about some really important issues at a national, international level, but fundamentally, an, a voter wants to know that you're representing their interests on the ground. And I think one of the big challenges facing the SNP right now is that they have lost that connection with local politics. Now, I know a lot of MPs and MSPs would resist that, but I'm purely talking about the governance of the country here. Is that government speaking for me right now? And I'm not entirely convinced you get an overwhelming yes to that. So. Immediately, as you were talking, Jeff, and Andy, you can reflect on all of this in a sec. As you were talking, we're going to talk about Fergus Ewing specifically in a second. But he is somebody who has taken... The, the A9 issue is interesting because in some ways it's a local issue, but it becomes such a national issue. Actually, the ferries is a really interesting example too because they affect local people but have got real national potent. And is, I just wonder if that's what it takes to make a local issue 
you have to give it national significance and national cut through but but not everything will ever get that and they they are still important to local people um so andy sorry i just wanted to pitch in with a with a kind of half baked thought but a thought nonetheless well i, I think not only so yes the connection has been lost as jeff described but i think it was deliberate to be honest i think that the acceleration of nationalism and the um attempt to create effectively a majority in favour of it post-2014, I think there has been a deliberate sort of one Scotland strategy. Um, We're all in this together, we're all Scotland, we are one, and that was seen, quite rightly I think strategically, as the way to encourage more people into the Yes camp. But uh, that has been at the expense of the cities and the regions. So I think there's been deliberate suppression of a Glasgow identity, of an Edinburgh identity, of an Inverness identity, of an Aberdeen identity. Those things have been deliberately suppressed in favour of a one Scotland identity as we've had this nationalist unionist argument. And it's very, very costly, I think. I think it's very costly. Um, I mean, I, I didn't vote in the last local elections because I did not want to encourage the sort of behaviour that we were seeing at local level, where basically all parties at local level, especially in urban areas, were just taking their lines from their central parties. There was nothing to do with what was actually going on in local areas. And if you look at almost any council, so my council here in Edinburgh, my council changes between the SNP and Labour with a little bit of help from the Tories now and again. It doesn't make any difference to anybody. Nobody would ever know who the council was run by, because there are insufficient powers to actually do anything about it. Um, There's insufficient will to actually make any particular changes at local level in case it affects what's going on at national level. So I think that has been a deliberate suppression. Um, And, you know, I think the Glasgow-Edinburgh thing is interesting. There was a study in The Economist about a year ago, I think, which basically reported back that the entire UK economy was based on London, the M4 corridor, Cheshire, Edinburgh and Aberdeen. That was it. Mm. That was the only place anything really of any significance was actually happening. Uh, And Glasgow is not on that list. And I don't think we should shy away from being honest about the situation in Glasgow's economy and society. It needs very significant improvement. But I think to get that, it needs more of a local identity about it. Yeah, and I just—I mean, I know we've got a lot of questions to go through today. Sorry, but I was just going to make the point about the Andy Whiteman podcast because listening to you speak there, Andy, you know, um, perhaps you know the party that recognises there needs to be a fundamental shift in the relationship with local authorities in terms of how they show up and the powers that they wield may be part of the answer to that. And I think it may actually feed into the the question that we have coming up about the Liberal Democrats potentially as well, what opportunities they might have to have relevance. But anyway, I'm I'm sorry. uh, No, it's good. But just, so see that Andy Whiteman thing though, I mean, sorry, Callum, but of of all the things that have been said by all the people on our podcast over the last eight months... Andy Whiteman's ideas might be the most important of all. They might be the ones that would actually change the country more than anything else anybody has said. Mm. Um, because we are, and he highlights Europe and particularly Scandinavia a lot, we are just light years behind these places in terms of local autonomy. I'm not talking about more devolution to Holyrood and all that stuff. I'm talking about what goes from Holyrood down to local areas. We are so, so far behind everywhere else. We're so centralised here. Um, and actually unlocking that is... Uh, should not be underestimated. It's massive. Mm. Uh, good question. Uh, thanks for that, Nick. Uh, that was good. All right, let's go on to Murdo's question, which relates to Fergus Ewing and sort of a, a review of Fer- Fergus Ewing's last few months, which have been loud and proud. Um, he said, "This is Murdo who says this feels like a statement, a seminal moment for the SNP. It's like a confirmation of that move further away from the political centre ground. Although not sure how helpful left and right descriptions are." Um, is there no place for people like Fergus in the new SNP Green Combo? He stands for views of many, not just in the Highlands and Islands, but in wider Scotland. It feels like the SNP's morphing into a party where there's no room or even tolerance for opposing opinions. It's a party a Kate Forbes could never lead. Only another Sturgeon clone, says Murdo, like Hamza Yusuf can lead. It definitely feels like there's no room for anyone from a rural perspective. All this time and energy going into speaking about personalities and ideologies, the great smokescreen that's preventing people seeing that nothing is getting delivered. Uh, Jeff Aberdeen. Yeah, it's a very strong and potent kind of observation. Um, and, I, and I have to say that um, 
I agree with the, a lot of the sentiment um, because it's what I'm picking up on the, the, the streets right now, not just in the northeast but around Scotland, in terms of are the SNP delivering for me? And say what you like about Fergus Ewing, um, but he is a stalwart of the SNP. Um, he has always spoken uh, vociferously in favour of his constituents, but also on what he views as the priorities of Scotland in terms of how we approach business, commerce. And I think the big risk for the, the SP is if you lose people like Fergus Ewing, regardless of how he conducts himself right now in Parliament, but if you lose people like that, and, and given the strength of what he said in the Parliament, and there was an exchange last week, and I, I tell you guys, I have no insight here, I'd be amazed if that suspension goes ahead, that if Fergus Ewing stays in the SNP. Because, mm. the, you know, he's basically at, at complete and utter loggerheads with the, 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 the First Minister. And that will be quite a moment. It'll be a seminal moment for the party in terms of uh, how it has evolved over the years. Now, it'll be for others to judge, um, particularly voters at the ballot box, whether that's a good or a bad thing. But for me, instinctively, and I've said this before, I find it so disappointing that we haven't managed to try and find a way to accommodate Fergus Ewing within the tent as opposed to having him outside the tent. The tent. Now, there needs to be compromise on both sides. I get that. But, you know, it's, it is a seminal moment. And uh, it'll be interesting to see how this one plays out. I'm quite taken, Andy, by the point that Murdo makes right at the end there about personalities and ideologies. He's, he describes the great smokescreen that's preventing people seeing that nothing's getting delivered. There is a risk, isn't there, in politics that it does become about people, personalities, ideologies, rather than actual delivery and kind of losing sight of the real purpose. Um, yes. <clears throat> this is this is a very interesting question, actually. Um, I It has already not become about delivery. So politics in Scotland is not about delivery right now. It's not about outcomes, it's about inputs. I think that's already happened. So there is a major habit in government to say that once you have released a consultation document or passed a piece of legislation or even just talked about an issue, that that is the box ticked. That's it done. So, you know, we've got a drugs death problem. We recruit a drugs minister and they report directly to the first minister. Box ticked, move on, next thing. That's actually not outcomes-based, though. That's inputs-based. And we do that a lot. I mean, we do that a lot. Um, which is a major problem. But I think this actually all goes back to the referendum. If you look at the journey of the SNP the, in government, between 2007 and 2011, it was a party based purely on outcomes, based on competence, based on doing things and showing people that you could do well with the powers that you have as a strategy for persuading them to give you more, right? And that strategy worked spectacularly. It's called the 2011 election. It's a spectacular strategy where it worked so well the electoral system was broken. Um, and then I think, I think a lot, in a lot of cases we haven't actually noticed, we haven't thought properly about what happened between 2014 and now. Because what happened between 2014 and now was that the focus was so much on yes versus no, that the fo it totally came off outcomes. We stopped caring about outcomes, really, to be honest with you. We stopped talking about them. Um, because outcomes can be complicated and outcomes can upset some people. If you want to make real reform of the NHS or of healthcare or something, you're going to have to do things that are going to upset people. And nobody wanted to upset anybody because they didn't want to lose votes from the yes or no camp. So we completely stopped focusing on outcomes. And there has been a massive policy drift from 2014 until now where we haven't focused on things, we haven't talked about things. And the most obvious policy drift, of course, has been on the economy. And that gets right back to the start of Murdo's question, is that we, uh, we have become a government and a country which doesn't care enough about the economy and doesn't make the link sufficiently between a successful economy and a growing economy and everything else that we want to do. So it hasn't sufficiently made the link between a growing economy and a funded NHS, for instance, or education or any of the other things. We've isolated them. And that's how we're now in the position that we're in, where on our podcast mm. in August, Hamza Youssef has to use the words, I am not a communist. How do you get there? You know, <laughs> how do you get to the point where the first minister has to say, I am not a communist? That, but that's where we, we drifted and drifted and drifted. And now we've reached the point where we have such a lack of focus on the economy that our first minister has to reaffirm to people that he's not a communist. That doesn't happen overnight. That's a drift. And so how to stop the drift? 
crucially. So that's the problem. What's the solution? Well, you can't have people in government who don't believe in economic growth. I mean, sorry, but that's okay. it. So the Greens, the Greens are the problem. Is well, what you're yeah, saying. I mean, I, you know, I know we talk about it a lot, and 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 I, I always yeah, yeah. reiterate in these that's situations that I'm not I'm not criticising them politically. I think they're the most pl- successful party in the parliament. Yeah. I think politically they have been magnificent. I think they have done brilliantly over the last two years in terms of politics. But in my opinion, mm-hmm. we are a Western country, we are a free democracy, and you can't run a Western economy successfully if you don't believe in economic growth. You can't do it. I mean, put forward a very strong argument, uh, Andy, and a lot of it I I agree with, particularly because you're talking about the time I was in government when it was so spectacularly successful, so I'll always take that (laughs) as the compliment. But the, 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 (laughs) the greatest irony of what you've just put forward, though, is, you know, you've linked the the focus on the constitution and then talked about the economy isn't it and it is galling for me that the reason the yes vote lost in 2014 to my mind anyway and I think there is a lot of data to support this is that we didn't convince enough people on the economic merits of independence I believe that there was a natural majority for independence uh, on the 18th of September 2014, but I think there was a, a lot of folks saying, I just can't do it, I'm just not sure we can actually afford this, which is fundamentally around the ec- economy. And yet, since then, there has been such a little um, uh, effort made to try and address that issue, if you accept your um, argument, Andy. And I think that's what's most galling for me. You know, I'd have been redoubling my efforts to try and persuade people of the economic merits of uh, independence, yes, by focusing on delivery in terms of your policy proposals. And, I, and I'm, I'm a bit disappointed in that respect. And I accept, you know, a lot of the macro policy believers are not um, uh, at the disposal of the Scottish government, but there's still a hell of a lot you can do, particularly post um, uh, further powers being devolved to the, to the parliament. So, yeah, it's an interesting one. Um, uh, that point about mm. delivery, I think, is well made. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got, what have we got? At least five more questions to get through on the pod. Thank you for these, by the way. You can email anytime. Hello at hollywoodsources.com is the email address. Even if you've just got an observation, a comment you want to add, then feel free to get in touch. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Let's go on to Mark, who says, I've heard people say the SNP can't run Scotland properly right now. Bit of a follow-up. Imagine what it would be like if they were in charge and we were independent. But Mark says, surely the SNP would almost collapse once independence was achieved. As a country, we would get on with voting for parties based on normal, normal subjects, he says, such as economics, foreign policy, health and education. There is no way that Hamza Yusuf, Kate Forbes, Joanna Cherry and Nicola Sturgeon would all be in the same party post-independence. Uh, what do you think, Jeff? Yeah, just the first part of the question first. I think we're in, at risk of just being, you know, criticising the SNP willy-nilly. There are still good um, proposals, uh, legislation... Um, plans being taken forward by the SNP and there has been in the time even since 2014 and you know I know that um, 
the baby box gets a fair outing, but it's still a significant policy intervention, which has been pretty much universally positive. Uh, there had been other um, good developments as well. The, the, the issue here is perception, and the perception really has taken hold that this is a, a government that isn't delivering for me as it should, and that's something that they need to work hard to resist. On the second part of the question... Um, yes, I mean, I've, I've always said this. Um, I think following uh, an independence uh, vote and then Scotland being a new nation, I don't think the SNP continues to exist in its current form. I think a new party would form. I've always maintained that um, at some level. And I think when, we, when I used to say that back pre-referendum, mm-hmm. people would kind of, you know, uh, laugh at that or, or you know, don't be ridiculous. But I think now people can see, you know, the fissures that are, exist within the party and the movement in terms of um, differences of opinion. And I think it's inevitable that happens. don't think it's a bad thing, incidentally. I actually think it could be a very positive thing. Mm. Um, but I certainly don't see the SNP continuing as it as it is just now, post-independence, no. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's the classic question, isn't it, about what happens afterwards to the party? Because there are a lot of people uh, still in the SNP who take the opposing view from Jeff? They think that they effectively should be the ANC, uh, and that even you know post major change, they are the perpetual party of power and shouldn't ever break up. But the truth is, the um, the SNP's tent is so big, and that's why you've mm. got somebody like Fergus Ewing, who's a sort of centrist free marketeer, in the same party as people who are from the pretty far left. Um, I don't think it's just an SNP problem, though. We've got a massive problem, I think, with political party structures. But also, Andy, sorry, just very quickly, I don't necessarily think it's a problem either, um, necessarily. I don't think having uh, a swathe of different opinion within a party is necessarily a bad thing. Well, so I think it is a bad thing if it's that wide. I mean, ultimately, if you look all around the world at Western democratic countries... Broadly speaking, they have a strong party of the centre-left and a strong party of the centre-right. And those two parties, power oscillates between those two parties. You're hard-pressed to find a country where that is not the case. Almost every country has that as the case. Uh, And that's fine, and that works well. And within those parties, there are differences of opinion, but they are not as wide as they are in the SNP. The church is much broader in the SNP than it is in a standard country which doesn't have this constitutional debate layered on top of it. That, there's no, I'm, I've got no doubt that is the case. Um, even if you look at countries like the Scandinavian countries that we always like to compare ourselves to, they all have a party of the centre-right and a party of the centre-left, and they always share power from uh, election to election. I mean, this is... that, that but, And then their churches are nowhere near as broad as the SNP. Sorry to interrupt, but let's just, play, yeah, you, let's just play devil's advocate for a second, because you've just said mm. in a previous answer that the most spectacularly successful, I think I'm quoting you correctly, um, a period of government was between 2007 and 11 when the SNP uh, were returned by majority in 2011 because they did reach out to all different erts and perts and different demographics and different uh, 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 locations across Scotland. So how do those two views work together? Well, we're talking about a slight difference between voters and elected people for a start. Um, it wasn't full of Marxists, right? Let's be honest. It was different. The makeup of the SNP vote and of the SNP elected members in that time was very different to what it is now. And I would also argue that actually the moment where the SNP reached out more to that um, further left group of voters was not between 2007 and 2011. It was for the purposes of the referendum campaign. That referendum campaign was a pretty left-orientated campaign. It was designed to get the SSP and the left wing of Labour voters voting yes. That, and it did that very well. That's part of the reason why it didn't get the sort of economic centrist you were talking about before on board, because it was so aimed at the left. So I think that happened in 2014. I don't think that happened pre-2011. Um, we can come back on that. But before I forget, the thing I was going to say is, I was going to say this is not just about the SNP. This is about all the parties in the Scottish Parliament. The biggest um, deficiency 
in the Scottish Parliament is its party structure. So if you look at, if you compare us to, for example, Canada, which is one of the best examples, their provincial parliaments have parties that are not aligned to the federal parliament in Ottawa. So you'll have Labour parties and Conservative parties in Canadian provincial parliaments, but they're not part of the central Conservative or Labour parties in Ottawa. They're totally independent. They're completely separate. That is what we should have here, because one of the biggest problems in the Scottish Parliament is that the Tory party and the Labour party and the Lib Dem party, they don't speak with an independent voice. They're based on what happens in London. That's the reality of it. And it makes the job of the SNP much easier, but that is the reality of what happens. Even on the SNP side, if you look at the uh, Parti Québécois and the Bloc Québécois, so the Bloc is the uh, federal party and the Parti Québécois is the uh, Quebec Parliament Party, they are not uh, the same party either. So even the nationalists are different at different layers of government. And I think that is causing significant issues because we are not devising policy for Holyrood alone with a Holyrood head-on. We're devising policy for Holyrood with a Westminster head-on. And it's a massive, massive issue. Can you realistically, Andy, it's really fascinating, can you you see... uh future at any point where the Scottish parties then deliberately and very clearly, as you've just outlined in the Canada example, make themselves that distinct from what could be considered the kind of UK parties um, of their equivalents. Would that ever happen? And why, And if not, why not? Is there is there fear? Is there fear there in doing that in some way or some sort of jeopardy? Uh, yes, there there is fear and jeopardy. Some of it's financial because so much of the money for the Scottish parties comes from London. Yeah, so fair. there's a financial fear. Um, uh, but there's also, there's also not really much history in this country of any kind of bold electoral move like that. There's much more history in other countries of doing that. We, in our recent history, we haven't really done this successfully very much at all. But in the case of the centre-right, if we look at the Tory party, not only is it realistic, it's also the only way for them to ever get into power. I mean, we have a situation at the moment where the Tory party in Scotland is the only party in the parliament that has never been in government, ever, and has no prospect of being in government because everybody will explicitly say that they won't work with them. So there's no avenue for Scotland. Scotland is unique in Europe and that it's the only country in Europe where there is absolutely no avenue, no prospect of the centre-right party being in government. It can't happen. It's not possible. Do you think, Andy, that the the... You know, let's assume that Labour trounce the Tories in next election, which is looking likely if polls are to be believed. Do you think there is, one, the political will, and two, the political nouse for the Conservatives to do what you're suggesting and try and kind of recalibrate their position to to capitalise on that opportunity? Um, I well, there are some people in it, and we know that because Murdo Fraser tried it in 2011, and I was a big part of his campaign trying to help him do it. So there are several people of influence who think, who thought this was a good idea, and who still do think it's a good idea, um, and that number is definitely growing. But most of the very influential people in the party are emotionally unable to think about a detachment from the London party. Um, Their line will always be, um, no, it's not the right time. Uh, We need to wait. You know, we'll save that for a rainy day. Unfortunately, they're usually saying that when it's absolutely pissing it down. Um, And they don't actually... They just don't have the emotional ability to make what actually is an incredibly logical and strategically obvious move. So Mm. my gut feeling is that it probably won't happen for the foreseeable future. Because I tell you what, guys, you know, we're talking about the SNP having, you know, different viewpoints and a a breadth of uh, different political ideology and positions within it. I tell you, the Tories at Westminster... Um, post a big defeat I think are going to be in the wilderness for some considerable time they've got a lot of soul searching to do the whole and their divisions are so pronounced and I just wonder in Scotland uh, whether you know they seize that as a, a, an opportunity 
to say, right, okay, we need to chart a different course here. Um, and we're not the same as what goes on at the well, Christmas Prize. It follows on. They'll have the discussion. I mean, if, if Suella Braverman becomes leader after the election, the Scottish party will have that discussion with itself. But history will tell us that they'll blow it. <laughs> you know, because you, I mean, l- l- let's be clear, Keir Starmer's just come, you know, to prominence after a number of years of trying to fix his party, you know, and they've been out in the political wilderness for a long, long time. And I just feel that the Tories of Westminster are going to have to do something similar. And yet, if these most recent polls are to believe that the Tories in, in Scotland might actually pick up a couple of seats. And so presumably that is a good platform to say, OK, well, we need to chart our own course here, guys. Anyway, it'd be fascinating to see. I know we've got to move on, so... No, no, it's good. It's, I mean, this is this is why we like getting your questions. It's because the discussion that follows is so, so good. Uh, but yeah, we want to try and get through a few more before the end of the episode. Uh, right, Gary asks, I'm wondering what the Lib Dems need to do in Scotland to become relevant again in Holyrood and not just local councils. I find it hard to hear anything about the Lib Dems in Scotland because of the size, the number of MSPs they have, says Gary. Uh, well, I would encourage you, first of all, to scroll back and have a little listen to Alexander Cole Hamilton uh, from, oh gosh, a few episodes ago, still in your podcast feed. Have a little listen. Uh, Jeff, quick thought from you on this one. Well, actually, and and I think the answer is in the question that's been posed. Really good question. Um, yeah. uh, w- w- you guys can testify to this, but when we came off broadcast, Alex Cole Hammond, mm-hmm. I I'd suddenly just said to you, you know, I, I'd asked him this question: How do you get relevance in this context where it's going to be an SNP Labour Tory fight, particularly an SNP Labour fight in, in the election? And we came off broadcast and I said, you know, they should just go after a strong local government party kind of um, pitch and be the party of local politics, which is quite familiar territory for the Liberals uh, of old, um, uh, given the the conversation that we've had so far on this podcast. I wonder if that's how they could be um, differentiating themselves to have that real, we will be the party, the voice of local government and then try and work your manifesto around that it seems to me like a decent opportunity for them because you're right right as things stand they may pick up one or two but they're going to be less seats than the greens again right now as things stand so um it's uh in scottish uh, parliament that is so yeah i would be interested in andy's Mm -hmm. views on that yeah i think we need two things to be relevant i think the first one is the thing that jeff mentioned they have to find their usp and their usp is decentralization i mean that that's that's where things are uh, you know, they're a relatively centrist sort of party and their USP is that they are decentralising and, and that is a pretty good USP to have at the moment, I think. The second thing they need um, is they need a, a majority unionist parliament with an Asarwar standing for election as first minister and they need to walk into his office and make some demands. That's the second thing they need to be relevant Interesting. I can confirm Jeff said that after the podcast, by the way, because I remember him saying it, me saying something along the lines of, oh, that's an interesting idea. It's a good idea that. And Jeff was like, I know, I'm really good at this. Uh, I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> all, of, <laughs> all of Jeff's best material comes offline rather than on the podcast. It's a shame. We should try and turn that around. Exactly. I'm just trying not to embarrass you, Andy. Yeah. <laughs> right, uh, the question for you from Gordon, uh, Jeff. Apologies for the football analogy, says Gordon, but how will history see Hamza Youssef, like Alex Ferguson, an enduring legacy with a statue to boot, or like Alex Smith, some success and a whiff of what might have been, or as Alex Miller, not to be talked of, crash and burn, says Gordon. Well, thank you, Gordon. And uh, there's no real easy way out of this question. I mean, I think the biggest risk for for Hamza Youssef right now, and and let me be absolutely frank about this, I mean, is that he might become none of those people but uh, Stephen Glass, who lasted over just a little as a year as Aberdeen uh, manager. That's the big risk for him just now. And um, and that was pointed out to him by me and by others in our podcast with him um, uh, uh, some months ago. Look, he has been handed the mother of all political hospital passes. We've discussed that. Uh, the, the public policy platform that he had to kind of navigate to begin with was extremely challenging. I believe he should have been much more stronger on that publicly, not just to, to kind of go behind the scenes and say, oh, we're probably not going to do that and we'll just kind of renege upon that in time and we'll just mollify that. But I'd have got to elect there and as I said, saying, look, we've had a look, I've got my feet under the table, that's all gone 
and this is what I'm going after as First Minister. And you present yourself as someone that means business, that knows what they're about. He still, for me, has not managed to um, establish himself as that strong leader with a vision for uh, both devolved governance and how he wants to utilise better devolved governments to achieve um, further powers and indeed independence. Um, he is a nice guy. He is finding his feet. There have been signs that he's improving. There's no doubt about that. But I still have this burning question in my head. Mm. And it's perhaps a bit unfair, but it's this. Why did you want the job, Hamza? Because I don't think he's answering that question day and daily yet. And I think he needs to ask, him, ask, ask himself that in the mirror at night and then answer it publicly. And do so, again, with gusto and conviction. I'm after this job because I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. I have not got that sense from him yet. And perhaps I'm being unfair, but I, I, I just feel that we have not got that strength of purpose from him yet. I'll just be very brief, because I'm a Rangers fan, so I'll just be very brief. And those who know will know when I say that Scottish politics has too many Paul Le Guens and not enough Walter Smiths. <laughs> There we go. <laughs> pithy. Pithy from Andy McKeever. <laughs> Jeff's not quite sure what to make of that, I think, by the look at his face. I'm just so annoyed we had a question about Sir Alec Ferguson. I did not mention him. Um, and let me just pay tribute to him. Uh, to me, the greatest Scot whoever of my time, let's put it that way, that's the uh, greatest living Scot. I think he's phenomenal. There we go. Uh, right, Alex asks a question. And by the way, I think sense the tone of Alex's question here. I think there's a kind of... I pick up a real sort of frustration in this, right? He says, It's become increasingly clear that Scotland has no voice in the United Kingdom. You may want to respond to that in a sec. We're consistently outvoted by the majority of MPs elected by neighbouring England. The SNP look increasingly feeble in their attempts to engage with Westminster. Isn't it time the SNP MPs stood up and walked out of the chamber, refusing to return until Westminster devolves the power to hold a referendum to Holyrood? They have nothing to lose and everything to gain. My point being, says Alex, if the majority of MPs from the UK's second largest nation refuse to engage with the UK institutions, the UK becomes untenable. I would have more respect for our SNP politicians if they would put their self-interest and careers aside to stand up for our nation in a meaningful way. Many stand to lose their seats anyway. We've become a joke. Leaving personal politics aside, I'm interested in what you think about this proposal and what alternative suggestion you would have to break the deadlock, uh, says Alex. Andy, go for it. Um, I mean, I think, it's a, I think it's an interesting one to talk about because um, it's not... Uh, it's not a completely unreasonable thing to have on the table, but ultimately... I don't think it'll work, and I think it would just make the SNP group at Westminster look childish and petulant if they did it. I think the biggest problem with it, though, is not that as a strategy in itself. I think it's the timing, because, you know, independence is fast slipping off the table here at this point. People can read polls, people can read the mood, um, and although independence sentiment remains strong at 46, 47, 48% in most polls, what we also know is that many of those people are not voting for independence parties. Many of them are polling for Labour, in fact. And the reason they are doing that is because although they are still saying they favour independence, it is not the most important thing anymore. So polls will tell you that, yes, independence is important to a cohort of people, but more important to them is the economy and the NHS in particular, and in some cases other areas as well, but, but in every single poll, the economy and the NHS are more important to them than the Constitution, whether they are nationalists or unionists, actually, but we're talking about nationalists for this purpose. So it is more important to them to have a good economy and a good NHS than it is for them to have independence. And at the moment, they are starting to shift their bet to Labour to deliver a better economy and a better NHS. They are thinking that Labour are the better way to do that than independence. So, you know, it is a look, it's a difficult time for nationalist strategists mm. to try to work out what to do. But the reason that they are having to scrabble around to try to work out what to do is that it is perfectly obvious that nationalism at this point in time, not to say it will be like this forever, but at this point in time, nationalism is on the slide. 
I'm going to answer the question directly. You know, should the SNP withdraw from Westminster? No, uh, I don't believe that. Never have believed that. But what I would like to see is um, more uh, specific proposals and policy interventions that seek to expose and outflank your principal opposition in Labour and the Conservative parties. So we've talked on this podcast before about immigration, making that very real to the Scottish experience and why we need uh, greater uh, immigration. Thinking about the EU argument, not just Brexit this, Westminster that, but actually talking up why we need to be part of the single market. Let's bring the data to the fore. Bring that as an education campaign to the people of Scotland. Say this is why you benefit from being in the single market. Think of those ways to try and outflank your principal opposition, the Labour Party, who let's face it, on these two issues that I've just mentioned, have not got the most clear position because they're trying to keep their broad coalition together just now. Far better to have MPs at Westminster making the case for these positions. And again, doing that, you you um, create the circumstance where people that feel that you're standing up for them and their views. Going back to that point, all politics is local in Westminster. If you can do that, that's the platform to build the case for a further uh, constitutional argument or indeed referendum. What I kind of get frustrated at is we've had far too much in the last eight years or so of ah the Tories this, Westminster that, um, and then we're surprised that when people go, do you know what, I think I'm going to go and vote Labour because it's even the SNP that are telling me we need to get rid of the Tories. And I can tell you what, if I vote Labour, I can do that. You know, there needs to be much more strategic thought given to the campaign ahead in terms of how the SNP approach it. Can I just add one more thing because I realise I only kind of answered half the question because there is an important point as well about the level of respect that the UK government has for the Scottish government and that has not been good over yeah. recent years um, and there is a perception in the Tory party in particular but also mm. in some parts of the Labour party that if you um, treat the Scottish government badly you are somehow beating the SNP. I actually think in the long term that's not correct. I think it's really bad for unionism to create a bad relationship between Westminster and Holyrood. The best way you can serve unionism is to prove that the devolved settlement works. And at the moment, the devolved settlement is not working. And for as many people as blame the SNP for that, will blame the Tories for that too. So that's something that they have to, I think, change their position on. Andy, I 100% agree, and I think that one of the reasons that you mentioned earlier on why is independence support still quite high is I don't think people in Scotland like that, you know, that approach from a Westminster Party. And I've said before, again, on this podcast, if the Labour Party came mm. up with a really decent devolution of powers offer and said we are considering uh, providing more fiscal um, levers to uh, Holyrood, or indeed over immigration policy. There is a precedent, as we know. I think that would be really well received because it's you respecting the fact that there's 45, 46, 47, 48% voting independence. Continuing to try and seek to undermine uh, Holyrood will only serve uh, the pro-independence camp uh, well in the long term. Maybe not for the SNP at the next election, but longer term, yes it will. Guys, thank you very much. Uh, what great questions. And that is a great discussion um, from Jeff and Andy as well. Uh, that is why you should send your questions in. You get their brains for free. You can email hello at hollywoodsources.com with any questions or any comments if you want to react to what you've heard today as well. Uh, but yeah, ping them in. And if we can fit them in week to week, then we will. And otherwise, we'll sort of build them into a special episode like this one. Uh, Jeff and Andy, thank you very much. Uh, thank you for getting in touch. Thank you for listening. And we'll talk to you again next week. Bye.